Welcome to this week's episode of Gin and Beer. I am your host, Meg, and this week I am super beyond thrilled to be joined by Leandro from The Educated Barfly. I've mentioned him multiple times on every single episode of this podcast and somehow managed to get him to come on. So thank you so much, Leandro. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm stoked to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, so a lot of my listeners will be familiar with Leandro, but for those of you who don't know, he is the host of The Educated Barfly, um, which is a YouTube channel as well as Barfly Free Pour um, that basically runs through drink tutorials and drinks history. Um, the channel itself has almost 200,000 subscribers. The 10 Easy Cocktails to Make at Home, which I'm pretty sure is the video that I discovered you through, has nearly 2 million views, which is ridiculous. Um, and yeah, I discovered the educated barfly during lockdown and basically binged it like it was breaking bad, (laughs) Um, (laughs) watched it constantly to the point where my boyfriend was like, could we watch an actual TV show? Um, but you taught me how to make a lot of cocktails. And so for that, I thank you. Um, it's a great channel. I also enjoy free pour. It's where I get a lot of my ideas for new bottles to buy. Um, and outside of that. You're on the cocktail program at Cole's French Dip, which is a bar in L.A. that is very top of my list as soon as I'm ever allowed back in the U.S. or just outside of my tiny little radius in London in general once this pandemic is blown over. But yeah, um, welcome, Leandro. Is there anything else you'd like to add background-wise about yourself? No, I think you covered it uh, pretty well. Um, Other than just that, I'm not at Cole's anymore. I got furloughed. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, so Barfly is now the the full thing. But if I get an opportunity, I'd love to go back to Coles because that's kind of my home away from home. Yeah, I feel like everyone is very in flux at the minute. But um, I had Tristan Stevenson um, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the hopeful, like, roaring 20s boom that's going to happen in the hospitality industry when – um, things get a bit better, hopefully, you know, vaccine and all that stuff pending. So hopefully everyone just gets on furloughed and we can all go hang out in bars again. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see like what the new normal is going to be. Like, is it going to reset back to like pre COVID or is everyone going to be like some form of PTSD or, you know, how's it going to change the industry? It's going to be really interesting to watch that unfold for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how, speaking, you know, speaking of the industry, how did you get into it? Um, what, what basically brought you into first cocktail making and then the, uh, educated barfly channel itself? I mean, honestly, like I have the most cliche, like Los Angeles story about getting into bartending and, you know, so many of my friends have these stories where they went to a bar and, you know, got served this amazing cocktail and all of a sudden the, you know, doors of heaven opened up and they floated through and knew that they (laughs) wanted to do this for the rest of their lives. And that just really wasn't my experience. Literally, I was working, I came to LA to be an actor from Boston. That's what I wanted to do. I I hung up all of my hopes and dreams on that one thing. I had nothing to fall back on. I dropped out of college. Um, And I, I'm kind of an enterprising sort of dude. And and I, uh, I worked my way through a lot of really odd jobs and I got very uh, kind of disgruntled with sort of the hustle of trying to make it as an actor. And I found myself as a production assistant um, working 21 hour days in the film industry. It's actually where I met Marius, my 
my current producing partner because we were both production assistants together in the film industry. And so I was just sort of trying to find my way. And after a while, I started to realize, like, I see all these really pretty people that would get these jobs in commercials and they'd get paid an insane amount of money to do almost no work. And I thought I could do that. So I got myself an agent and I knew that I couldn't work as a production assistant anymore and I had to do something. Uh, One of my production assistant friends uh, worked at a nightclub in Hollywood as kind of a second job and uh, it was, he, he would just make an insane amount of money. Like on a Saturday night, he would just walk away with, he'd start at 10 PM and work till 4 AM and make like seven, $800 in that night. So I said, that sounds good. I can just work in the day and I can work at night and, and audition in the day and just like try and become a commercial actor. So that was my intro into the, into the bar industry, just sort of making every crazy kind of nightclub drink, um, that didn't like I literally I did it for four years. Uh, it was not something that made me fall in love with bartending. Uh, I had a falling out with the the owner there and left and went downtown. Found myself as the manager of a wine bar, which I was. I just have the gift of gab and I can bullshit really well. So even though <laughs> I knew nothing about wine, I just sort of like really tried to learn everything that I could about wine and just sort of had the gift of gab with the customers and. The owner, who also didn't really know anything about wine, uh, but had these amazing kind of wine dispensing machines he picked up in Italy and made a whole bar around it where it was like the first automatic wine bar, um, kind of put me in charge. And for better or worse, uh, I landed in that bar, which was across the street from a really good friend of mine that I had worked with uh, in the past. And he introduced me to Cole's French Dip, uh, where I then started as a bar back. And worked my way up. It took me about three months to be made a bartender because I was just so into it. And then that is where my sort of love of cocktails started. I had this amazing manager named Brent Falco who was just like really just she connected the dots between history and cocktails for me. And I'm a big history nerd. Like I'm a guy that's just always read, you know, histories and biographies. I'm just really into it. So she kind of connected those dots. And once those dots were connected, I was like a junkie. I just had to, I had to know everything. And that's the place where I learned how to make cocktails and make them high end and make them look nice. And like all my, my whole philosophy kind of came from there. I was really lucky though, because that training came from Milk and Honey in New York, the legendary bar. So the varnish in the back of Coles is owned by Eric Alperin, who is a guy that also worked at Milk and Honey, but then also Little Branch in New York and, you know, was directly trained, trained by Sasha Petrosky, who then uh, trained another guy who trained Brent and then trained me. And so we we're all kind of trained in that tradition. That's very, that's very cool. So pretty much learning from the best of the best. And would you say, like, what was it a challenge at first or was it one of those things where if you're super passionate about something and, and you love it, like it just kind of starts to click and you just felt like you were, you know, really getting up to speed with making all of those drinks. And like you said, making them look presentable and making them very high quality. I mean, it was definitely a, like a learn, there was a learning curve and it was absolutely a challenge. I think that it continues to be a challenge now and that's why I'm still very engaged in it. You know, like I don't like it when people say like, Oh, this guy's a cocktail expert because even though I know a bunch, I'm still learning a lot. And Mm -hmm. like, even like when people are watching the YouTube channel, like we're all learning together. I'm just learning different lessons than they're learning. You know what I mean? Like I'm passing on what I know, but then I'm also learning 
lessons. And I think that's just sort of kind of what keeps me engaged in the whole thing is that there is no end to the learning, you know, and it's all. So I, so for that, in that sense, there's things that I'm really good at behind the bar. And then there are things that were a real big challenge for me, kind of connecting the, the flow of hospitality with, you know, like minute execution of drinks and being able to do those side by side. Uh, was I think the kind of the biggest challenge, like really being able to split your really focus on the kind of minutia of cocktails and executing that at the same time as helping someone have a great time at the bar and engaging with them in a meaningful way is something that I found very, uh, very challenging and something that it took me a little while to master, mm-hmm. uh, especially because unlike places like the varnish where there is a somewhat of a separation between the bartender and the, and the, and the customer. And then there's a, a cocktail waiter in between Coles is a place that is a complete regulars bar. It's ground zero for most of the bartenders in town. It's a place that's, I mean, I, I used to just joke that it was cheers with better drinks. Like <laughs> people, you walk in and everybody knows who you are. And if you're new to the bar, you know, we were gregarious enough and interested enough in our job that we really tried to make everybody into a regular and, and, it, and it worked pretty well. And so because of that, you know, there's the split between like making someone a, a great old fashioned or a great Manhattan at, at the same time as sort of entertaining them and kind of being the MC of their evening. That was something that was kind of it's very easy for me because I have the gift of gab, but then splitting my ADD in two to, to do both those things was definitely a challenge. Oh yeah, definitely. No, I can I can definitely understand that. And I think one thing that always um really interests me when I when I talk to people who make drinks for a living just because it's so different from me, um, you know, getting into making a handful of drinks during the pandemic and all that is is this notion of like being able to come up with drinks yourself. Um because I guess like I've made variations on like the standard templates and stuff like that, but I, it always makes me think of like when I was in school, I took French and my French teacher always said, when you start having dreams in French, that's when you know that it's really starting to like embed itself in you. So when, at what point in your, you know, drinks career, did you start to just like come up with drinks yourself um, and not necessarily just like subbing out an ingredient in kind of a, the classic template, but where you actually thought, okay, this is like a really original idea of mine. And then you tried it and it actually worked really well. All right. My answer might be a little bit disappointing because (laughs) I started, I started making drinks right away. And the best way to start doing that is to be breaking apart templates, Mm -hmm. not to mention that every single, not every single, but almost every single original drink that, milk and honey came up with is a variation on a template. So the thing about cocktails that a lot of people now know because of death and company, but is a concept that bartenders have known for a long, long time is that there are only, you know, six or seven different kind of what are called root cocktails, right? Which are, which provide templates, right? So an old fashioned is a great example of that. The old fashioned is a drink, but it's also so it's like its own drink, but it's also a category of drink that you can riff on and riff on and riff on and riff on as long as you follow that template, which is bitters, dilution, spirit, sugar, right, and, and, and some type of citrus. You can change all of those ingredients out. The other thing is, is that my own philosophy or the philosophy that I sort of 
learned and really subscribed to when it comes to making cocktails is that little changes can make massive differences. So even if you just change out the sugar and the main spirit, if it changes the idea of the cocktail, then it is a new cocktail that needs a new name. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when you drink an old fashioned, right, there's a controlling idea behind that mixture of sugar and citrus zest and and whiskey, right? And so you can change those whiskeys out, rye, right, or bourbon, you know, it's still going to be kind of the same thing. But when you take something that is so different, like certain scotches or most scotches, really, uh, most really flavorful scotches or rum, it changes the idea of the cocktail. And Mm -hmm. for me, I think that those are the most kind of I don't know, like most profound kind of ways of creating cocktails. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that I, I think that we're in an era right now that people are incredibly excited and everyone's trying to sort of reinvent the wheel. There have been a few enterprising bartenders that have taken some really big sort of ideas that are mainly left to chefs, like, you know, stewing ingredients or, mm-hmm. um, or you know, uh, adding what I, you know, culinary technique into cocktails. Um, the thing is, is that when I look at a cocktail on a menu and I see that there's 12 ingredients in it, it's easy to balance 12 ingredients. Just a little of this, a little of that. It's a little too bitter, add a little more sweet, a little too sweet, add a little more citrus, you know, tinkering, tinkering with all these different flavors. You can easily make a, a good cocktail, but what's, what's really difficult. And I think what really kind of lends to the mastery of cocktails is can you take something with five ingredients and under and make it so deep in flavor that it kind of like it reveals itself almost like the layers of an onion. Like the first sip is different than the last sip. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why I build old fashions the way that I do. And that's why I love them because if you used, you know, granulated sugar or a sugar cube, that drink evolves from first sip to last sip is a completely different thing. And it is, it is always satisfying throughout and it reveals different things. And the different, and the more you drink old fashions, you have a different experience every time, no matter how many you've had. And for me, that is mastery. So I think that, so I started doing cocktails right away. I, I think that now I have so I have gained a lot of knowledge and so it's easier for me to make things that I know will have a profound effect on people without necessarily putting a lot of thought and experimentation. So when I first started, it would literally, t- I would tinker with cocktails for five or six months before I called them done. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I just don't do that anymore. I'm more confident in my choices and I know what goes with what a little better. I, I also trust my palate a little more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, that definitely, that definitely makes sense. And that is also an excellent segue because you have chosen the old fashioned to discuss for, um, this week's episode. So would you say that what you alluded to about the old fashioned being such a complex drink that evolves with every sip and it's different every time you have one, which I completely agree with, would you say that that, is um, one of the reasons why it's so significant to you? Um, okay, well, I chose the old-fashioned because it was my obsession for a really long time. It's the first cocktail. It is a cocktail that is so simple and yet so difficult to master and make a great one. Mm-hmm. And it is, I don't know, when I was a younger and more arrogant person and more <laughs> arrogant, here's the thing, when people 
become bartenders and they almost without exception, when people become bartenders and they first understand these concepts, it lends to this type of arrogance in you that you then go around to other bars and turn your nose up at what they're doing. And what's funny is that the more you learn, the more you loosen the reins and the less arrogant you are and the mm-hmm. less and the more forgiving you are, you know, and you, because you just understand more, you know, it's like the more you the more, you know, the less the less sort of, I don't know, you, I don't know, attitude you are or something about things. Yeah, and yeah. so when I was a more arrogant, younger bartender, I would go to bars and I would order an old fashioned and I would say, ah, oh, these guys don't know how to make an old fashioned. I'll never order a drink here again. <laughs> <laughs> because this is the one drink that I think exemplifies all cocktails. The thing about the old fashioned that I love so much other than that is that it is 100% the history of the United States rolled up into a cocktail and you can taste something that people have been drinking for that entire time, uh, largely, not completely, but largely the same as they, as they would have. Mm-hmm. And it really, um, it really is sort of the microcosm of the, the history of spirits in America as well, you know, and actually came from the tradition of drinking rum. I don't know if you want me to like go into the whole thing now or, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Why not? <laughs> right. So in this country, we started, okay, so in this country, when we started drinking alcohol, before people were distilling uh, whiskey, we were basically importing rum from the Caribbean, um, you know, either from French or English colonies. And some of that rum was pretty rough to drink. And so what we would do is we would add a little water and sugar to it, which is called a sling, right? So slings became incredibly popular and were served in taverns all over the New England, the the first 13 colonies. As time went on, we started distilling whiskey. And again, you know, before distillation was kind of an art in this country, they were distilling stuff that was very rough and kind of hard to get down. And so what they would do is they would add a little water, they'd add a little sugar And they would call that and they would drink it. And then that would be like, you know, just sort of, I don't know. Somebody once told me, and I don't, I haven't like fact checked this, but somebody once told me that the, the, the expression, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down right from Mary Poppins. Yeah. Yeah. Has something to do with this sort of history of, of, you know, drinking rough spirits and adding sugar and water. That's interesting. So as time went on, we, we started adding bitters to the old fashioned, right? Uh, and we started calling it a bittered sling. And uh, that was, you know, up until the 18, like this is like probably like 1860s, 1870s, I have like the bittered sling. Uh, and then bartenders started getting their uh, hands on these uh, spirits from Europe, right? So we started getting like maraschino liqueur and orange curacao and stuff. And we started fancy, we started making what was called the fancy cocktail, right? Which is the mm-hmm. cocktail that Jerry Thomas in his first uh, or second edition of his book, this is like th- that was the way that he liked to make drinks. And basically, a fancy cocktail was adding in ingredients from Europe and then sort of putting it in a fancier glass. Uh, so we had what was called the improved whiskey cocktail, right? So you have this thing that was the sling, right? It was just like a, a very just simple way of getting your alcohol in. And then we went to the bittered sling, adding a little bit of bitters in there to temper the sweetness. Then that bittered sling is also known as the whiskey cocktail. 
And then after that, we had the improved whiskey cocktail where we started taking that whiskey cocktail and adding curacao and maraschino liqueur and trying to make it fancier. So that was the kind of overall whiskey drink. And so the, the, the idea of when the old fashioned came around is that at some point somebody walked into a bar, you know, late 1800s and said to a bartender, we don't know who I'd like a, a, I want a whiskey cocktail, but I want one in the old fashioned way because they didn't want to have that fancified, you know, you know, fancy improved whiskey cocktail. They wanted the old whiskey cocktail. And Mm -hmm. so it started becoming the old fashioned. There was a story that the, that the Pendennis club was where this scene happened. But David Wondrich uh, pointed out that old fashions were uh, referenced in a article about 20 years before that story happened. So it could not have been uh, at the Pendennis club. And that's, that's my understanding of the old fashioned and its history. That's really so. When the earliest iterations, when they were making slings and the whiskey cocktails, was that mostly bourbon or rye, or was it like was whiskey made completely differently back then? So rye whiskey would have been made first because mm-hmm. uh, rye grain um, was the, uh, the that was the grain that we could actually distill from. Mm-hmm. Uh, bourbon didn't actually come around till a little bit later when we started moving uh, when we started moving. Uh, south and into Kentucky, and then they then they realized that they could grow corn, and then when they started growing corn, they started actually making the whiskey out of corn because rye grain um, is a very hardy grain and it can withstand those elements in the north. Right when we had those first thirteen mm-hmm. colonies, but it's really difficult to mess with. Like talk to any rye distiller, and it's a real pain in the ass to make rye whiskey. Um, there's just all sorts of like it's a finicky grain, and and there's all sorts of stuff that can go wrong. And so the bourbon. Uh, it's just a little bit, the corn, you know, in bourbon's a little bit easier to deal with. And so they started making this corn whiskey, first corn whiskey. And then the, the story that I heard, I mean, uh, from multiple sources, but you know, there's always new evidence coming to light. And then people are saying, uh, you know, like this history changes over time, but Mm -hmm. the history that I've heard is that basically they were taking this corn whiskey, they were putting it in barrels and they were, and they were floating it down the Mississippi river, uh, down to new Orleans and like down to Louisiana and basically in that time, the, the whiskey would get its barrel aging, right? And then the people in Louisiana would prefer this whiskey that was, made, that was coming from Bourbon County, Kentucky, uh, over the corn whiskey that was being made locally. And so mm-hmm. they would ask for that bourbon coming – they would ask for that whiskey coming down from bourbon, right? And so then it would be called bourbon. Um, uh, so it would be – it had been rye first, but I don't know. What was – I lost, I lost myself in the question a little bit. <laughs> no, I was just asking if it was a primarily rye or bourbon, but yeah, you answered the question and what you said about rye being more complex makes sense because, um, at least in London, that's definitely reflected in the price of rye here. Like rye, it's much harder to get rye whiskey just in your average like grocery stores and stuff where they'll have like three or four different types of bourbon at least. Um, and it's usually way more expensive I've found ever since I got into buying whiskey here. So that's probably yeah. part of why. Pro- yeah, probably. And also part of it is that like rye whiskey, you know, took a, took a big fall, you know? So rye whiskey is the traditional whiskey that we were distilling, um, you know, up in Pennsylvania and Maryland. Um, and, but then, you know, bourbon kind of went through a, a big sort of revival, like first, 
you know, it was, and, and there was a lot more, I think, um, like marketing behind bourbon. And so for a while, even though bourbon kind of took a fall in the eighties when vodka kind of, you know, club culture became king and Mm -hmm. vodka became king, uh, and then kind of had like a revitalization, rye was, uh, to the point where even maybe 10 years ago, it was actually kind of difficult to get a bottle of rye because mm-hmm. not that many people were making it, you know, and then, then this sort of like renaissance in cocktails, right, where people were trying to make the most traditional, um, the tradition, like the most traditional version of a drink, mm-hmm. right, is why rye actually came to be and why a lot of uh, of these uh, distillers started finding the old recipes and sort of trying to recreate these old uh, kind of rye whiskeys and and also like revitalize some of these like um, very uh, old uh, traditional uh, rye distilleries that mm-hmm. still had that they still had um, recipes around for. Um, so for a long time, I think because rye was hard to get and bourbon was sort of just what you thought of when you thought of American whiskey. Mm-hmm. I think that obviously because of that, you know, the bourbon's going to have a bigger international presence than rye, but I think it's coming for everybody. You know, I think that, uh, you know, now with, with, with the kind of rise of cocktails since, you know, 2005 or 2006, where things got really big, big, you're going to see like the revitalization of a lot of different spirits, you know, but especially oh, rye whiskey for sure. Yeah, a lot of people are saying rum is is, but I, I mean, I feel like rum has kind of already boomed. But I guess like just in terms of your average cocktail bars and stuff in London, um, everyone thinks that that's going to be the next big thing that everyone wants. Which I'm all for. I like rum. <laughs> Me too. I actually became like I, you know, my whole beginning of my career was really dominated by gin and whiskey as like mm-hmm. my, and I have taken a. The last three years, I have just gone down the rabbit hole uh, with rum, and it's something that I kind of embarrassingly really didn't pay that much attention to in the beginning of my career because I was just so consumed with gin and and whiskey that I didn't really know that much about rum. But for my money, I think that rum is probably the most uh, nuanced, flavorful spirit, I think, existent because there's so many different styles that are so different from one another, yeah. uh, even more so, I think, than than something like whiskey, gin, or vermouths, or you know, I mean, there's anything that has proprietary ingredients are going to be different. But rum is like, I mean, those different categories are insanely different, and they're amazingly delicious, all of them. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I that was another um, thing that I did in lockdown was I poured over Martin Kate's Smuggler's Cove book. Um, and I still kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around all the different categories of rum, but I've had a lot of fun trying. Them. Um, right. But yeah, it's you. You can never really finish studying it. It's so. Um, it's so interesting, and I, I like a rum old fashioned as well. Um, that's probably one of my favorite old fashioned variations. If I'm going to change up the spirit. Um, so when can you remember the first old fashioned that you ever had? Oh, it was at Coles. And was not it? only that, but also I had mastered making old fashions before I started really drinking really? them. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that like a lot of people have this fantasy that bartenders are big, big drinkers and some are. Mm-hmm. And in the early part of your career, you know, like in the early part of my career, you know, there was always like family meal shots during work or there were, you know, times where you sit down at four o'clock in the morning and pour yourself a little bit of whiskey um, to wrap up the night, count your money. Um, 
But to be honest, uh, cocktail consumption is just not something that happens that much. And when you're making, you know, 150 old fashions a night, the last thing you want to do is go to a bar and order an old fashioned. But I do make them quite a bit at home. And I think, yeah, I think my first one was at, at Kohl's and it was sort of having it so that I could understand what I was making for everybody else, because I don't think that you can truly master making something if you don't have an idea of how it tastes. So, you know, as you're, when you're a young bartender, you should be tasting through all your cocktails to make sure that you're stirring properly or you're not adding too much dilution in the shake. Um, but also like, you know, I encourage everyone to drink a, a responsible amount of, of, of cocktails as well if you're really into it so that you can really understand the experience from beginning to end. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that makes sense even just on a much, much smaller scale making cocktails. I actually feel like I drink a bit less now that I've gotten really into making drinks myself because I like to save drinking for things that I actually want to drink and I'm excited about. Um, and also... Like, this makes me sound super arrogant, but, like, Negroni is, like, one of my favorite drinks and just something that you can get everywhere in London. I I don't – I haven't found a Negroni recently out in just your average place in London, obviously, not going to super, super nice bars because most of them haven't even reopened, um, that I like better than the one that I've figured out how to make at home, you know? So it's, like, if you really get into things and, and you figure out what you like, then – it gets to a point where I'm like, I don't actually really want to go out and order a, you know, Negroni. It's going to be a Bombay Sapphire and like a spoiled Martini Rosso. And, you know, when I have all this stuff and I know exactly how I like making it at home. So, yeah, I think I think people would assume that if you are making drinks as your profession, that you're drinking a lot. But I can definitely see how that actually wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I mean, you know, at like when you're working, for instance, you can't really drink a lot anyway because then yeah. your whole night yeah. is a mess. And I mean, when I drink, if I drink to excess, the only thing that I really want to do is go to sleep. I mean, yeah. that might just be like by <laughs> virtue of my age, but, but like, no, I'm I think that's like, a normal side of that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm just like, all I really want to do is go to bed. Like, I, so, you know, I rarely drink to excess. Um, you know, and then, you know, as far as drinking other people's drinks, it is also kind of a hard sell. I mean, this is going to sound, make me sound a little arrogant as well, but like, you know, it's hard to, it's a hard sell for me to go out and spend, you know, 15 to 20 bucks on a drink that I could make for myself at home and have it be just as good as or better, you know? So usually when oh, I'm yeah, going out to, to drink cocktails, I'm drinking cocktails at friends bars and I'm tasting their new menu, you know, yeah. like seeing what's out there. Now, what I found once things started to reopen in London um, was I I really enjoyed going to tiki bars because a lot of times they just had ingredients of like, you know, you're talking about drinks with so many ingredients and stuff that I'm just, I'd have to spend a fortune just to have all of that behind my bar. And then I'm like, okay, this is worth going out and ordering. But yeah, I, I do, I struggle. Um, I struggle to go and, and order just basic drinks out because like you said, you're going to spend so much money and then you're going to be like, well, I could have made this at home. Right. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, tiki drinks and also like really culinary forward drinks or people yes. who are doing things like lacto fermented ingredients. Like I kind of, you know, sort of learned the hard way that people on YouTube, right. When they view your YouTube video, they don't want to learn how to lacto ferment. They don't want to, <laughs> what they want to learn how to do is, you know, they want to know 503 ingredient cocktails, yep. you know, that they can make easily. 
and that with readily obtainable ingredients that are readily obtainable worldwide that everyone can get. So it makes it a little bit of a challenge to figure out like, okay, well, what are we going to do this week that's going to be like interesting, new, right? With readily accessible, right? That isn't going to make people go out and buy, you know, a bunch of equipment, you know, and then also be able to make it, but it's going to be like fresh and something that people are going to like. And, you know, it's funny because the, the, a lot of the videos that do the best are the videos that are the most simple cocktails that we're like, oh, this is, we're just going to throw this out there. It's not going to do well, but you know, we like this drink. So, and then, then that's the drink that sort of captures the imagination, people's imagination. It's interesting. Um, anything that I know, knew about YouTube, anything that I assumed about everything that I assumed about YouTube was completely wrong. <laughs> um, and it's been a kind of an interesting learning curve. <laughs> oh, I don't doubt it. I mean, I was laughing because I was listening to your um, the first Talktales episode that you did with Shauna and Adele a couple years ago, and you had said that you just like felt like you were shouting into a void and what, not getting anything back, and I was laughing to myself because I was like, I can't remember the last time I brought up the Educated Barfly channel to someone and they didn't know exactly what I was talking about, so I was like, <laughs> it's, definitely, it's definitely not a void at this point. You're very much shouting to a very large worldwide audience but I can fully imagine that it's a uh, it's a challenge I mean I do like really stupid low quality um drink tutorials on Instagram TV once a week and I try to tie them into that week's podcast and stuff like that but yeah it's hard it's hard just you know like you said ingredients that people will have and um yeah you don't you want to do something fresh but not too fresh and <laughs> it, right. uh, it's impressive that you guys are able to come up with those videos so frequently well yeah i mean the thing is is that the more we do you know i mean the more that we do the kind of the harder it is to you know there there are going to be there's a limit to how many three ingredient cocktails you can do before you're, yep. you're, you just run out and there will be you know right now we're sort of in flux we've just been sort of pushing videos out to keep the um, to keep the schedule while we build this new set. But once this new set goes up, you know, there are just certain videos that I'm going to put out that I want to put out there and I'm going to put out there that I know are just not going to do that well, but are just, you know, the whole idea behind the educated bar fly. The reason why I started doing it was because I wanted to show people that they could, I wanted to show people that they could and how to simply make great drinks at home. And what I what I learned about was that no matter the cocktail channels that were on YouTube at the time when we started, nobody was teaching any technique. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are some great channels out there, channels that I really, really like, but they don't teach just simple technique. Like some of them will teach like scientific, you know, kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, reasons behind things in a sort of scientific way or some scientific technique, or they'll take you through something that the aviary did or they're a channel that just, just has like a really, you know, kind of charismatic host that does cocktails, yeah. but there was nobody, there were like, you know, some Jim Meehan cocktail videos out there that liquor.com did, but nobody was really watching them. And there, and it's not as if like Jim Meehan or anyone had their own, you know, video channel. Right. Yeah. So when we yeah. started, there was just no professional bartenders that were doing, or there weren't very many. I actually found that there were some, but there weren't doing ver- there weren't very many that were doing anything on a regular basis, um, and not through some other things. So when I started, I really just wanted to like make a channel that simply taught this, and then also I wanted it to be the most like I wanted to be I wanted to be the largest 
amount of recipes on YouTube. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be the most comprehensive channel out there, which I still do. So now I'm going to start getting into some, some pretty complicated stuff like, uh, you know, freezing, you know, I have a, there's a new way that you can sort of freeze a cocktail into an ice ball. That is not the, the way that you do it with a mold, which is going to be cool that mm-hmm. we're going to be prepping and using fire and smoke. We've done that a little bit. We've touched on it, but I kind of want to get deeper into it. Uh, fermenting th- stuff, you know, and learning to make shrubs and things. It's like a lot of stuff like liqueurs that I make at home that people have been asking me to do that I've been like sort of putting off. I'm going to start getting into that stuff as well. So we're going to take it up a notch a little, hopefully. Well, I think that you've built up the following and the notoriety that it's time to do that, though, because you've got so many people who've probably been watching or have caught up on, like you said, all of the three ingredient um, recipes and things like that. People like me who've, you know, gotten had way too much time throughout the pandemic and watched all of that. And they also want to get into the stuff that's more complicated. Um, so you start putting that putting that stuff out there. I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, so our aim has never been to be the most popular. Um, honestly, when we started this, I didn't think it would go anywhere anyway. I was just doing it for fun. And so I still just kind of just do it for fun. Mm-hmm. And um, but, I, you know, I, I do want to kind of take it up. And I think that there is uh, a bunch of people out there who would really like to know that stuff and sort of because the idea behind having a cocktail channel that you just recreate every cocktail that comes out is is great. But I really want to use the educated barfly to, you know, really inspire people to do their own thing. You know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, to understand like, oh, I can like I can ferment something in a jar and use that in a cocktail. Here's one example of how to do that. How can I do that on my own? What can I ferment yeah. at home? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or how can I be more sustainable? You know, or like, you know, how can I think of using different ingredients, you know, you know, in a new way or, or, mm-hmm. or, or learn something that I haven't. You know, that's what I'm, that's kind of what gets me, you know, that's what gets me up in the morning is like, you know, knowing that I can kind of help people do that. And I'm learning a lot of stuff on my own too, because there's, you know, Coles is a very, when I was working at Coles, it's a very limited menu and you end up executing the same thing over and over again. We do classic American cocktails. Yeah. There's not a lot of uh, space to play with carbonating something or, or, you know, lacto fermenting things or freezing mm-hmm. things or, you know. Um, there's just not a lot of room for that in that program. So, you know, for me, it's kind of like, it's fun for me to figure these things out as well. Yeah, definitely. And did, like, cause you've done, you've featured a lot of cocktails from, um, bars around the world and from, um, cocktail books and things like that. Like, do you think, um, taking the pandemic completely aside that you like traveling and trying other drinks has been kind of a bonus of, um, of, of just the channel and, and wanting to kind of showcase drinks that you've had that you've enjoyed or even drinks that you haven't tried that you want to try for the purpose of the channel. Yeah, actually, you know, here's the thing. Uh, the pandemic really screwed us up because we started that Barfly Freeport channel to do a travel show. And that's what we're, we've kind of, of we built up a, we built up a, a, so we had done this trip to New York and a trip to San Francisco and shot a whole bunch of uh, test kind of videos to sort of put together a template for what we would do for a travel show. But my main ambition, you know, I mean, I'm going to continue doing cocktail tutorials and the bar educated barfly is going nowhere, but, but my main ambition now is to really start to travel around and visit some of the bartenders that I, that I, um, 
that I featured. The thing about featuring other bartenders and their recipes is that a lot. One of the reasons why the Educated Barfly happened was because um, I'm going to say this in a way that doesn't make me sound like a complete jerk. Um, <laughs> there's a small group of bartenders that get all of the notoriety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at Punch, you'll just see the na- same names over and over again. If yeah. you look at Liquor.com, you see the same names over and over again. I was lucky enough to land myself in a really vibrant cocktail community um, in Los Angeles where people were just doing amazing and incredible stuff. And so part of – and, and a lot of them were just not getting the rec- recognition that they should get in my opinion. Uh, so part of it was like, hey, you know, when I first started the Educated Barfly, I, I wasn't going to be the one in front of the camera. I was actually going to be the producer and director and I was going to find bartenders from around that I know that I really enjoyed and whose cocktails I think were great. And I was going to put them on camera. And the reason why I, it became me being on camera is because bartenders – uh, scheduling them is like herding cats. Oh yeah, I believe. And <laughs> getting them on camera when they go, yeah, 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 I'm used to being on camera, blah blah blah, and then they get in front. You turn on the camera and they freeze. And yeah. so I was like, I might just have to do this on my own. But at the same time, I still wanted to do their recipes because I want. I think that people should know about them. And so I thought, well, hey, if I have something, if this goes anywhere, you know, I want. I think that these. I want. Just wanted to help my friends get the notoriety and recognition that I thought that they deserved. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be like the alternative to something like Punch. Now, that's not to say that I haven't featured recipes from Punch or bartenders uh, from Punch or Liquor.com. I, I read every single periodical, imbibe, Punch, everything. I read everything. Yeah. There's not anything out there in the world that I have not read about cocktails <laughs> at this point. I don't think I soak it all up. Every single cocktail book that comes out, I buy it and read it. So, um, but that being said, I do try to like focus on, you know, maybe bartenders that are doing interesting things that maybe people don't know that much about. Like I know in London, you know, like Team Lion, yep. Ryan Chetty Wardana is really well known. I think I said his name correctly. Yeah, but in the I've States, never not tried. So I usually just say Mr. Lion. <laughs> Mr. Lion, exactly. Um, but in the States, he's uh, he, he's well known in bartending communities, but, you know, just people, I don't think they know about him that much. And so no. some of the stuff that he was doing, like making fake lime juice. And so I started doing original cocktails that were riffing off that, off those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I featured a few, maybe one or two kind of simpler recipes that, that they've done at, at Team Lion. And then also that, you know, the trash tiki, uh, the trash tiki kind of movement taking bar waste and turning that into uh, usable ingredients also yep. came out of Dandelion, right? And mm-hmm. the bartenders there that were working with uh, Mr. Lion uh, as well. And so I featured that a bunch because, you know, I think everyone should just know about that. I want to make sure that whatever things that are not getting as much recognition as I feel they should get, I'm going to try and get them as much recognition as I can. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's kind of what, um, what I am with the, the podcast as well, just because, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like cocktails and drinks and stuff, it's just something that so many people enjoy and also doesn't have to be, um, doesn't have to be alcoholic. Like I'd really like to get someone on to talk about coffee sometime soon. Um, just cause that, you know, it's so ritualistic and something that everyone, lots of people indulge in things like that. But yeah. Um, I just think it's someone said to me recent, Oh, it was, um, my friend Matt who has a podcast that, that is about music. Um, he came on and he just said, I just like listening to people talk about what they're passionate about. 
um, whatever that is. And I, so I think that applies to, you know, my podcast or your YouTube channel, like whatever it happens to be, um, just watching people, you know, teach about that and then also give recognition to people who deserve it in whatever that field is. Um, it's a, that's a positive thing. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more, there's nothing more fun or there's nothing better than seeing someone that's truly excited about something. Talk about it, even if you don't know about it, or even if you're even not, I mean, there, there, there are times where I'll listen to something that I'm not even that interested in, but yeah, yeah. the person's so engaged in what they're doing that I am, uh, I'm attracted to that for sure. Yeah. And do you, um, do you feel like, cause obviously there's a huge amount of production that goes into um, running a YouTube channel like the Educated Barfly, and you have you have Marius. But do you feel like the channel helps to scratch that kind of film side to you um, that you started out with? Like, do you it, it allows you to dabble in and what your where your interests kind of started? <clears throat> I mean, yes and no. I mean, no in that like I don't end up really doing very much of the technical stuff. Like I don't operate the camera. I don't, I don't edit anything. Mm -hmm. My time is taken up by designing episodes, uh, you know, you know, kind of making sure that the history makes sense because you know that if you get one thing wrong on YouTube and anyone thinks that you have any expertise (laughs) in anything, they're going to let you know you're wrong in the harshest possible way usually. So, so, uh, you know, just making sure that like, I've, you know, crossed the T's and dotted the I's and everything's in order. And then also sort of making sure that the episodes are going to be kind of engaging. Um, you know, I also spend quite a bit of time working on my camera presence because I don't, you know, hosting something is much different than acting in something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that I was very natural at it to begin with. Uh, you just watch the early episodes, just go all the way back and watch the gin gimlet episode (laughs) and you will see how horrible and how horrible it was. And and then also how surprising it is that, that it actually went anywhere. Um, So I end up sort of like, you know, kind of trying to, you know, being on camera is not that easy for me, you know, honestly, like, uh, I don't know. There's all sorts of things that I, I do that I think are just not really camera friendly. And, and so I try to sort of kind of work on that, you know, like being natural in front of a camera is difficult for me. So all my time is taken up with that, that I don't get that much time to like, Mm set up a camera and just like, you know, do whatever, you know, or like edit the episodes. You know, I, I have creative input in that, like me and Marius will have long, long discussions about like fonts and things. But a lot (laughs) of the visual stuff that you see are like Marius's innovations that I say, Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. I like that. Or, Oh, let's try something else. Or like, well, I guess the ones that, yeah, that I say, let's try something else you haven't seen. But sometimes, (laughs) sometimes because the thing is, is that I'll let Marius just sort of run the creative, you know, kind of design side And just sometimes I'll let him run with, you know, we'll like, we can let each other run with things and just try it out and see how people or how, how we think it plays, I think. And if it plays well, we'll keep it. And if not, we don't like the tape over the, uh, over the thumbnails wasn't really a thing that I, I was (laughs) for to begin with, but, but I let him do it and people like it. So, okay, that's cool. There you go. Yeah. 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 So hopefully, I don't know. I'd like to, I'm planning on doing a few, there's a new 
style, like there's a new video that I'd like to start doing without Marius basically where I've just set up a camera and sort of just run through like new bottles that I got in the mail that I really like or answering questions because I've noticed that there's a lot of people who I get emails, I get several emails every day where people ask me questions that are really in-depth uh, answers, like things that would be like difficult for me to sit down. It would take me a long time to sit down and sort of write it all out. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it might be kind of fun to just sort of take three or four of these questions once a month and then just like talk through them, you know, yeah. um, in like kind of an informal way, but I'm just sort of waiting for the set to, to be done before I do that. But uh, I, hopefully that'll come and, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think it'll be appealing to the people who want the answers. And, you know, there's a lot of people who ask me questions like what's the difference between all these cherry liqueurs or what's the difference yeah. between all of like, what's the difference between orange curacao and triple sec. And there's just a very long answer for that, you know, so maybe making it into a video would be a good thing. Yeah, no, and then and then more people benefit from it as well. I think that's definitely a good idea. Um, okay, so speaking of all of that, I think I'll ask you some some random questions. Um, what is a drink that you would make for someone who claims to not like cocktails? So you try to sell them just on cocktail. It can be anything: gin, whiskey, tequila. Someone tells you, I don't really like cocktails. I'm more of a wine or beer person. What would you um, make for them? I'll make them an east side immediately, and they'll change their opinion on cocktails for sure. <laughs> that is the that is the that drink is the equalizer, and I also yeah. use that drink as the first drink to give to anyone that doesn't like gin. Yeah, that's yeah. a good show. I yeah. need to do that, that to my one. parents. They've had a daughter who lives in London for almost five years, and I've tried so many times, and I just can't get them on gin. It breaks my heart. But oh, it's, <laughs> you know what you should do because they do they prefer vodka. They know actually they are massive whiskey drinkers. My dad likes oh, okay. Well, they both my my mom likes single. I have said this so many times on the podcast. She's probably going to get mad at me, but she honestly like keeps Laphroaig in business. Um like she just <laughs> like the woman like loves her scotch. It's she my parents went to a wedding in Scotland like 10 years ago and it's all she's drank since. Um and my dad I mean my dad likes everything. Um but he he's like a big Manhattan drinker and stuff and he'll drink scotch with my mom they don't they don't really like vodka um but they just they hate gin they just can't do it i've got i've tried so many times Um, really cocktails and everything yeah i mean i probably haven't gone out of my way enough with like i probably should just try making them an east side um i've had them try loads of uh of like nice gin and tonics and stuff in London and they can just never go for it. And my dad doesn't like Negronis cause he doesn't like Campari. So it's just, it's well, Negronis a are a acquired taste. The first yeah. time I was given a Negroni, I, it, it, it blew my mind as to how much I hated it. It was, <laughs> it was the worst, but once you acquire the taste for Campari yeah, and you can really taste the nuances of the balance between the Campari gin and sweet vermouth. There's nothing like it. it's my favorite drink now, but when I first tried it, I hated it. So I completely understand that Campari is a very rough, very bitter introduction to aperitivo. Yeah, it is. Know? Yeah. And which is why it's funny that it's the average person's introduction. Like that would probably be the first aperitivo besides like Aperol um, that most people would have, but yeah, no, I need to I need to work on um, my parents with gin. But okay, next question: um, What is one rule of cocktail making that you would never ever break, and one that you think is made to be broken? It can be. Ooh, oh man, that's such a good question. But <laughs> oh, man, um, 
one rule of cocktail making, I mean, there are several rules of cocktail making that I wouldn't break in that I wouldn't break like any rules regarding sort of like balance of flavor mm-hmm. or, or dilution, you know, mm-hmm. I think those are the rules that I wouldn't break because those, there's just like scientific facts behind those. And yeah. there's reasons why this work, why these techniques work. One that's meant to be broken though. Um, you know, I think just like, I don't know if there's like one that's meant to be broken. I would just say that like anybody who gets really stuck in a certain idea, like the, te- like, like, you know, certain templates or, or ingredients that don't work with one another, I would say like, I don't know, like my whole philosophy is like, there's no such thing as right and wrong mm-hmm. when it comes to certain things, but there is such thing as good and bad, Yeah, you know, and we, and you can immediately taste something that's good and something that's bad. And even if you don't know what you're talking about or you don't, or you're not educated, on, you know, cocktail making and all the nuances of technique or whatever. It doesn't matter. If you sit down, if you know nothing about cocktails and you taste something that's bad, you're going to know it. And if you taste something that's good, you might not know why it's good, but you, but it's, it's good. It's I don't know. Good. I feel like that's yeah. a non-answer, but. No, but. no, I, I buy it. I buy it. Yeah. I think I do. Um, when I had Matthew wine on, that was something we got, we got stuck into. And he said, so he said something very similar to you. Like he was like the basic things like not reusing your ice and using fresh juice and stuff. There's just really no reason to deviate from those. Um, but you know, switching out, like, you know, there was a time when my dad really liked his Manhattans with bourbon instead of rye. And if it tastes good and it's made nicely, then why not? Yes. I mean, I'm not an ascriber to the bourbon Manhattans unless you use 100 proof bourbon. So if you like old granddad, that spiciness will actually balance out the sweetness of the corn. Yeah. For me, if you use like 80 proof ones, it's a little too sweet for me. Yeah, I I did just because I I say grow grow up drinking like I was like – you know, pushing around Tonka trucks, drinking Manhattan. <laughs> I started, I started drinking them with bourbon. Cause that's how my dad made them. And then like, I've now I've had them with rye and I don't think I could go back. It's just, go so I there. like the spiciness in the rye. Um, so actually what is, I mean, I kind of know because I watched your video, but what is your perfect old fashioned recipe? Oh, uh, okay. My perfect old fashioned recipe is to make sure that you're using a Japanese bitters dasher so you can get that nice precise dash. I do eight dashes out of a Japanese bitters dashes, which equates to about four dashes, maybe a little bit less from an, uh, from a Angostura bottle. Now, mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't realize about dashing bitters is that a, there's no, there's a standardization for the volume of a dash, but when you dash from a dasher, you have what is called a tight dash and a loose dash. And it has to do with the volume of bitters in the bottle, right? So when you have a tight dash, the bottle is very full. And so there is less space for the bitters to fall through the emptiness of the bitters dasher and hit the dasher. So you get a little bit less volume than when it's really low. And when you dash it, there's a lot of space for it to fall toward the dasher top. So I like to keep my bitters dashers at a certain volume, right? Right mm-hmm. up towards the neck, but not too high to get a nice tight dash, eight tight dashes of bitters onto a sugar cube. Um, the reason why I like to do this is my own kind of thoughts on the texture of the cocktail. And then also I've, it's sort of built in a little bit of, some people scoff when I say this, but it's a little bit of manipulation on my part. 
uh, of myself and then of other people in that when you use granulated sugar or a sugar cube and you add a little dash of soda in there to help that sugar dissolve, you get this grainy quality when you make the drink, right? Mm -hmm. So there is undissolved sugar in there. Now you've, you know, I've mashed up the sugar bitters soda solution enough to have kind of a paste where a lot of it will dissolve and you'll get a nice sweetness. But the beginning of my old fashions are really, um, they're really, uh, kind of stiff. And then as you drink it and as the ice dilutes and opens up the kind of length lengthens the flavors inside the cocktail, Mm -hmm. you're diluting sugar. So it's getting sweeter and sweeter as you drink. And that last sip is going to be a mouthful of like sugar, whiskey, water. Mm-hmm. The reason why I say that's manipulation is because what happens when you get a mouthful of sugar? Well, your dopamine you releases. You get very happy. Yep. You get happy <laughs> and you want another old-fashioned. So it's kind of a way to sort of manipulate people into drinking old-fashions all night. Yeah. Um, but uh, but th- that's what I like. So I like that grainy quality because it there's an evolution to the – to there, there's a further evolution. So when yeah. you make old-fashions with uh, simple syrup, which there's a lot of – very reputable bartenders that make it with simple syrup. Yeah. I just feel like you get a little bit less of that evolution. It still evolves because the water is lengthening the flavors and diluting yeah. things as you go. But um, for my money, that that kind of grainy quality is really something that I look forward to and the sort of evolution of how it goes when you drink. So then I also like to do uh, orange twist and a lemon twist because mm-hmm. you get a little more sweetness. You get a sweet citrus from the orange and you get a really nice sharpness from the lemon. Um, and I like to put a little Luxardo cherry on mine. Luxardo cherries are good in everything. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> or an Amarena cherry or a brandy cherry. Like yeah. anyone, any, any type of like high end cocktail cherry, I'm just kind of a sucker for. So I'll, yeah. I'll put that in my old fashioned as well. Yeah. No, I, I totally, and I agree with what you're saying about the grittiness of the sugar. Cause I recently made a port old fashioned with tawny port and maple syrup in it. Um, it was, it was very autumnal. It was really good. But what like I missed using the maple syrup was it was just, it didn't, it was kind of the same drink all the way through. It didn't change kind of in the way that you would get out of an old fashioned that you make with a sugar cube, but it was still, it was really nice. Um, but yeah, when we, uh, when I went to, I think it was Wisconsin as a kid, um, I can't remember what restaurant it was, but my dad, um, ordered this drink called a new fashioned, which I Googled a new fashioned and it's a real drink that wasn't any, cause I think it has brandy in it or something. But what this guy brought him was, it was an old fashioned, but it was with the Jim Beam Red Stag, the cherry flavored one and, um, seven up, I think, and a sugar cube. And my dad was, ma- he, I, I don't think he's made one in years, but he was making those at home for ages. It was, they're, they're good. They're interesting. Very sweet. Um, I mean, that's what they do in Wisconsin. So like yeah. the Wisconsin, do you know what, like, do you know what the Wisconsin old fashioned is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause they, the, is it, is it always seven up that they use? Well, they do, they do sweet use- or sour depending okay. on what they top it with. So if you, I believe if you want to do a sweet one, you do seven yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do a sour one, they do squirt, which is a grapefruit. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, but yeah, they, they do like sweet or sour. So like when you go to a, a bar in, in Wisconsin and you say, can I get an old fashioned? I'm going to ask you if you want a sweet or sour. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've been to Wisconsin since I turned 21. So next time I go, I'll have to, I'll have to get one. Um, 
Okay, one last question, and then I will I will let you go. But as a Chicagoan born and raised, I have to ask, how do I get myself to like Malort? Because <laughs> I don't know I mean, if I'm the, capable. Here's the thing about how much Malort have you drank? How much Malort have you drank? Uh, not, a your life? not a lot. Not a lot. Not, okay, not so. a lot because the first time was so traumatizing. <laughs> Right, because you had it when you have so – the thing about Malort is that I, I have heard about Malort for ages, for years and years and years, the Malort, 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 yeah. how terrible Malort is, choking down Malort. The thing is is that Malort is basically just a wormwood amaro kind of. It's just yeah. like a wormwood liqueur and I had already primed my palate over years to love bitter flavors. Yeah. I am a huge amaro fan, maybe as big as – any other spirit. I love Amaro. I love it. And so I really, pr- and, 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 you know, honestly, I, when I had that first Negroni that really, uh, kind of knocked me out of my socks in the mm-hmm. worst way ever, it's sort of like, it's kind of like laid down a challenge. And I was like, I got to figure out why people like this drink. <laughs> what is it about this drink? And, you know, that was sort of the moment that kind of got me to sort of go down this, you know, rabbit hole of aperitivo and bitter flavors and amaros. And so because of that, when the first time I had Malort, which was uh, my friend Zara, who I used to work with at Kohl's, is now the Corvassier brand ambassador. And she lives in Chicago and she came to visit LA and she said, I'll, bu- I'll bring you a bottle of Malort. And so she did. And uh, well, the first time I had it, I was like, this is really not that bad. Like it's actually, it can taste like citrus in there, <laughs> a little lemon note. It's it's a little bit bitter on the finish, but I bet you I could put this in a cocktail and make it work. Like it's it's really not not as terrible as people made it out to be. So I think that priming your palate for intensely bitter things is a, a really good thing yeah um, and I here's do. the thing if i ever come to london all right and we meet i will bring a little gamel dansk with me which is the uh danish malort uh, oh boy. also made out of wormwood which is like malort times a million it's insane <laughs> <laughs> we got a bottle in norway last year when marius came back from visiting his parents and it's gamel dansk is crazy that's a deal it's like, well, I'll try that, and then I'll try Malort, and maybe Malort will go down easier. Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair, like I, I love, I love Amaro's as well. Like I, have, I feel like I have a pretty strong bitter tolerance. Um, so yeah, now that my palate's developed a bit more, maybe I'll have to give it another try. I mean, but... I don't know how you're getting it in London, but but uh, when you maybe when you visit, yeah, you know, you should definitely try and try it again because you'll be surprised that. You know, now that you've primed your palate, it may not be as terrible as it was to begin with. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That um, will definitely be an interesting experiment. <laughs> I'm going to do some, I'm going to do some Malort cocktails. I've been experimenting. I've been sort of looking up what people have been doing. I found Malort in certain cocktails. I've figured out a few flavor buddies that Malort is good with. And I think that eventually, you know, cause we, I now have this tradition that I drink a shot of Malort anytime I make anything from Chicago. So yeah, I've noticed anytime that, I do a yeah. Chicago bar, we'll drink a little shot of Malort. I think I forgot it on the last one and someone called me out for it, but <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of Malort because I, I, I reached out to them and said, can you just send me some Malort? I'll put it on the internet if you do. And they did. Yeah. So uh, they sent me some t-shirts and stuff. I love it. It's my favorite thing. It's one of my favorite things. I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I do. I, I love it just because it's just very distinctly Chicago and I like anything that's, you know, Michael Jordan and deep dish pizza, anything that just says Chicago, I'm all for, but <laughs> I just 
had trouble enjoying the taste of it in the past. But yeah, no, if you're if you ever come to London, definitely let me know because we'll have to get a drink. Hopefully things will be back open. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as soon as we can travel, we're going to start doing like uh, we stopped posting on Freeport just because we just have not a lot of time to yeah. post there right now. But the idea is to, I mean, one of the things that I'd really like to do, which might take a little funding is like, I'd like to visit all of the 50 best bars in the world and do little episodes on them, you know, well, and three just of the top little, 10 are in London. So in London, a good right, place exactly. Start, I yeah. mean, there are some places that I have to visit like, uh, like, uh, the Duke and the Connaught. Yeah. I got to get those martinis. Um, you know, I would love to be able to shoot little, you know, I just want to do like little 10 minute, you know, kind of videos where we go to different bars because that's the next thing. It's like, okay, now, I mean, the thing about me is that I'm as much a fanboy of bartenders and what they do as I am of cocktails. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think that the next thing that I'd really like to try is sort of like really meeting some of these people, you know, kind of trying to scratch beneath the surface of what they do. Uh, highlight them, but then also help hope that that will inspire others, you know, to yeah. either be bartenders or, or their own cocktail journey, um, or at least just go visit when they're in town. Yeah. Or to just come and be a guest on Gin and Barrett. <laughs> or just become a you guest can, on Gin and Barrett, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you can just refer them all this way. Yeah, no, definitely no. But I, I share that passion as well. Like I said, I have no no experience. I really, honestly, since I've become so into it, I wish, cause when I was a kid, I did like, I worked at target. Um, I was a babysitter and a nanny. Like I did loads of like the stereotypical jobs, but I never worked in the service industry. I was never a waitress. Didn't work at a coffee shop. Um, I wish I had even just been like a bar back or something just for the experience when I was younger. Um, cause now I've just got like a boring finance job and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but, um, yeah, I just love talking to people who enjoy making drinks. It's just it's fun and um everyone's so different based on where they are in the world and what they like to drink and their style and things like that. So it's never it never gets boring. Awesome. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know if we're course. wrapping up, but <laughs> so what's the story behind gin and beer it? The name? Like, like the or name the and like why you started I mean, I know why you kind of started because you're you know, obviously very interested in cocktails. Yeah. So, well, so actually it, um, it's all, it's all kind of weird. I, so I wanted to start a podcast because I moved basically, um, born and raised in Chicago, went to college in Chicago, um, and decided I wanted to move to London, um, applied for a job at a finance firm in London and got it. And they agreed to move me out here. So I basically graduated college in June and in end of July, I had moved to London. Um, so really, really young. And, um, like two years after living in London, I was like, I really, I obviously, you know, like the sound of my own voice. And I was like, I would like to start a podcast kind of documenting this experience of living abroad and all the different people that I'm meeting and the travels that I'm going on. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, the name, I agonized over the name for the longest time. And then my friend took me to a really great bar um, in London that has unfortunately since closed called Gin and Beer. Um, And I was like, oh, it's like Grin and Barrett, Gin and Beer. And so I kind of went with that. Um, And yeah, it was like at the beginning, it was just, it was really fun, but it was all over the place. Like I had my old flatmates did a nine month cycling trip of South America and I interviewed them and I interviewed like my friend and what it was like planning a wedding. It was just all very random and like the episodes were cool, but what it was lacking was like the elevator pitch of 
just like if someone asked what gin and beer it was, it was really hard to explain. And it wasn't, it just, it just didn't have that, uh, that catch or that focus. Um, and then it was, <laughs> it was during lockdown first, my mom and I got a masterclass account. So I watched, um, I watched the masterclass mixology with Mr. Lion and Lynette Marrero. So that I was like, this is amazing. Then I started watching, um, your YouTube channel. I read Tristan Stevenson's curious bartender and then got super into Tiki and stuff. And, um, in like the very midst of the lockdown, my boyfriend and I had like a cocktail making competition when we were just locked at home, just the two of us. And after I had had like four cocktails, I was like, what if the podcast was about cocktails? (laughs) I was just like, I've got the name already. I love to drink. And honestly, ever since then, it's just been great because now that it has that focus, it's so much easier to find people to come on it. But I haven't like, I can still talk about it. I can still bring it back to my experiences living in London and use it, you know, to find people who've had, who've moved abroad and stuff like that. So it's not lost that original kind of purpose, but it's just the focus has made all the difference. So awesome. Well, I've listened to a bunch of episodes and I think what you're doing is awesome. Like it's really good. And you know, it's easy for some, you know, there's some podcasts out there. It's a little drier, sort of hard to listen to, but, but your episode's really good. So thank you. Thank you. That that means a lot, especially coming from you, because like I said, I, I literally binge the educated bar fly for the past like six months. Um, so it's a bit surreal. It's like having Beyonce tell me she likes my songs. Oh my god, <laughs> you just called me Beyonce. Um, that's really <laughs> flattering, but I'm just super surprised that anybody listens to a damn thing I say anyway. <laughs> like, no, seriously, I think like know. what what you said about um, like what channels were out there before you started. I think where you really hit it with educated barfly is that like there there are youtube there are drink making channels that are really cool with all of the like high production effects and like crazy camera stuff and it's really interesting to watch but educated barfly like it's super high quality so it's not like you have like no one can hear you and you've got poor lighting like you have a clear set it's very high quality but it's like succinct like i could set it you know, up and be like, I'm going to make this drink while he's explaining it at the same time, you know, so it's like seven minutes. Like, I just think that that's kind of what, um, what people need for learning that stuff. So yeah, no, keep, keep at it. It's, it's great. (laughs) Um, and yeah, thank you again so much for, um, for coming on the show. It was, it was really cool getting to chat to you. Hopefully you'll come back on again sometime. Well, it was nice to meet you. Thanks was, for having me. It was great to meet you as well. Pleasure was all mine. Well, that wraps us up for this week's episode of Gin and Beer It. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. And I can pretty much go die happy now because Leandro from the fucking Educated Barfly has now been on Gin and Beer It. I am honestly still pinching myself. Um, so I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to that as much as I did recording it. If you are a new listener brought by The Educated Barfly or wherever in the world you've managed to find Gin and Beer, I hope that you guys enjoyed and will tune in next week for another episode. You can find my website, ginandbeeritshow.com. You can find Instagram at ginandbeeritshow. I do weekly 
drinks tutorials on Thursdays that I like to call Thirsty Thursday. Um, And I also basically just post on there anytime that I'm drinking, which is most days. And you can also reach out to me via email at show at gmail.com if you have any requests for drinks that you'd like covered, suggestions for future episodes, or most importantly, if you'd like to be a guest yourself. So thanks so much again to Leandro for coming on the show this week and to all of you for listening, and we will catch you next week. Cheers. <laughs>